If you have your Bibles, please open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and as you're turning there, let me say what a joy it is to be with you again on this happy occasion. I do bring you greetings from your brethren at Covenant, another Covenant PCA church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and the Tennessee Valley Presbytery, and what a privilege it is to get to open God's Word with you and to preach on this momentous occasion. Uh, As Pastor Nick already mentioned, I now have the privilege of participating in two major milestones in the life of your congregation. About three years ago, 2019, I was here to preach for the installation service of your pastor, my dear friend and brother, and now here I have the wonderful opportunity to study God's Word with you where you all take the next big step in the life of this congregation in the ordination and installation of your first ever class of ruling elders and deacons. Truly, this is a praise the Lord kind of day. Every Lord's Day is a praise the Lord kind of day, but today especially so. Well, your officer, nominees, and you have already undoubtedly received excellent pastoral training, and you, the congregation, have been taught about what to look for in the men whom you've nominated and voted for as far as officers. But given the occasion today, I thought a passage like 1 Timothy 3 would be most suitable. So, There's a lot going on in the service today, so we'll look at the passage, and we will barely get to scratch the surface of it, but let's turn there, and before we read God's word, let's ask for his help and blessing. Let's all pray. Lord God, thank you for your word, and help us as we read and study it today. Come, Lord God, the Holy Spirit, and grant us your illumination, and grant us understanding. Amen. 1 Timothy 3, we'll read verses 1 through 13. This is God's holy word. Hear it. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, but not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us today. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, you know those verses in verses 11 and 12, when the Lord Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. He poured out, Paul tells us, and is pouring out gifts upon his church. And the men that will stand before you today 
Paul makes it clear that Jesus gave officers to the church. Now, when the Lord Jesus gives you a gift, you need it. It's not just something nice to do. It's not just something extraneous. Jesus doesn't give unnecessary gifts. And if he gave the gift of officers to the church, he must think that his church needs officers. And so for just a very few minutes today, I want to look at this passage and think about two things very simply. What God wants in elders and what God wants in deacons. What God wants in elders and what God wants in deacons. So first, what God wants in elders. And the first qualification is found there in verse 1. Godly desire. Godly desire. Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do, or he desires a noble task. Right? Different Greek words, I know, and I know your pastor has thoroughly explained it to you, but overseers here means the same thing as when Paul elsewhere says elders. Right? Elder, it's a venerable title with ancient origins stemming all the way back from Moses. But do note that Paul's concern is not that a man would desire a status of authority or reputation or prestige or prominence, but he says here that he would desire a work, a task. Paul is saying that the first qualification of eldership is that a man would desire to do the spiritual work of a shepherd in the church, not that he would desire to be merely esteemed, And friends, it is a glorious thing. It is a good thing to be an elder. It's true. It's a high calling. It is a serious thing. It is a weighty thing. But the main thing that Paul wants is not a man to aspire to that honor for the recognition. Paul doesn't want people to seek to be an elder because it makes them look important or smart or powerful or, frankly, because they like the attention Or they like, they like being in charge. What terrible motivations, what absolutely horrendous motivations that would be if a man sought to be an elder for those reasons. But Paul says they should aspire to the work. He wants men who are burning with a desire to shepherd the people of God. He wants men who want to be pastors, right? All elders are pastors, not just the preachers, not not just full-time ministers, but all elders are pastors, Right, Chester's here with us this morning. He's an ordained ruling elder. He could tell you the same thing. Yes, they have to make hard decisions about budgets and buildings. But the reason ruling elders and teaching elders, the reason elders and pastors do that is because they love you. That's part of the job, yes. But what they really love to do is shepherd the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Your elders love to talk to you about the things of Christ. They love to tell you the good news. Your ministers here today, your pastors here today, the the men who are about to take the office, they'll tell you the same thing. What they want more than anything in the world is to talk to you and to shepherd your soul and steep your soul in the good news of Jesus Christ. To shepherd you to better delight in our triune God. They want to talk to you about Christ's life and death and resurrection and ascension on high and his coming again. They want to talk to you about King Jesus. That is the delight of a shepherd. And you can see that in a way that a man commits himself to the life of a local congregation on a Lord's Day and other occasions because that's their great desire, to shepherd the people of God. Nothing delights them more than getting to talk to you about the good news of Jesus Christ for sinners, that in him there is pardon, full and free and life abundant and joy 
in the Lord Jesus. And your elders and elders-elect are delighted to get to shepherd your soul in that. They aspire to that good and noble task. That's the first qualification, a godly desire. The second thing is character. He has a godly character. Look at verses 2 and 3. An overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but rather gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. You see here, Paul expects elders to be in a lifelong pursuit of holiness. Now, what does holiness look like? Right? Does holiness, when you think of holiness, does that mean having mystical experiences and reading your Bible all day long and not working because you're just too busy praying nonstop, 24-7? Well, Paul gives you a very practical description of what holiness looks like. Here's a holy man. He's free from scandalous sin that would warrant public criticism. He's the husband of one wife, right? That's, a, that's simple and sincere marital fidelity. He's a sober-minded man, or he's temperate. That is, he's emotionally stable. He's, he's level-headed. And related to that, he's prudent. He's respectable. You see there, he's hospitable. All Christians, all believers are called to hospitality, but elders are to take a lead in that. He's not addicted to much wine. He's able to enjoy it in moderation and not to be a drunkard. Related to the virtue of temperance, he's not pugnacious. He's not given to quarreling. And, and, and goodness knows, in the life of any church, when you're dealing with spiritual matters and you're dealing with sinners, and every single one of us is a sinner, if you're not a sinner, raise your hand. And if you do, we're going to talk afterwards. Every one of us is a sinner. Our, our pride and our ego get in the way. And sometimes we say things that irritate each other and push us toward anger. And so you need to be able to be a man that can handle that kind of circumstance and gently instruct and gently admonish in a godly fashion. And Paul will say that later on. And he's free, we see, from the love of money. Money doesn't rule him. I love how one man put it. He doesn't love things and use God. Rather, he loves God and uses things. There There it is. That's holiness. Very simple. Essentially, it's basic Christian godliness, basic Christian holiness that men should aspire to. It's not super-level piety. Paul says, look for these things in a man. Look for this simple biblical godliness, and you'll see in him the qualifications for an elder. So, godly desire, and then godly character. But then thirdly, godly ability. Godly ability. An overseer, then, must be, and then right there at the end of verse 2, able to teach. Paul singles out only one ability for an elder. He must be able to teach. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul has a lot more to say about character, about godliness, about personal virtues. But when it comes to abilities or skills, he lists only one thing. He should be able to teach. Not have corporate-level leadership skills, right? Not even a world-class communicator, Not even a phenomenal teacher or the world's greatest university professor. No. Paul says able. He should be able to teach. That's that's the biblical requirement for an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. Very simple. He should have a basic ability to teach, to disciple, to cogently instruct others in the things of God. Not every elder is great behind a pulpit. 
Not every elder needs to be. Is he able, at a basic level, to disciple the people of God in sound doctrine and sound living? So, godly desire, godly character, godly ability, and then fourthly, godly homes, godly families. Look at verses 4 and 5. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The point is this. Paul says, look at how a man shepherds the souls of his wife and his children if he has them. Look at how he gives spiritual leadership there. Look at how he leads them in the life of the congregation. Godliness in the church, godliness at the congregational level, it begins with godliness in the home. How's his prayer life? What's his family worship like? The pattern of piety in his home will translate to the pattern of piety he's going to seek to inculcate in the life of the congregation. So that's the fourth thing to see here. God wants elders with godly homes and godly families so that they have a pattern and a template by which to lead the congregation in godliness. Godly desire, godly character, godly ability, godly homes. But then verse 6, elders must be mature in the faith. Or we might say godly conduct. That's the fifth qualification Paul spells out, godly conduct. Paul says he must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. You know, Paul doesn't give us a specific age limit. There's there's not one there. Many times in our denomination, in the PCA, we ordain teaching elders, pastors, fresh out of seminary, and they're in their 20s or so, and that's fine. That's perfectly fine, so long as they are godly. And Paul says, look, when you choose an elder, make sure that he's spiritually mature. You, You shouldn't choose someone who is just converted. And, you know, we've seen this over the last 15 years at least in American evangelicalism. And sadly, we haven't yet learned our lesson. How often do we see a high-profile celebrity become a Christian? Whether it's a, a movie actor or a professional athlete, whatever. And they become a Christian, and what does the evangelical culture do right away? Put them up on stage. Send them around the country. Put them on TV. Send them to churches talking about their faith journey. And how many times... Sometimes in a matter of months or a year or two. And grievously we see them fall into gross immorality. Or even flat out reject the faith and denounce the Lord Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says, don't do that. Don't take someone who has just converted and make them a teacher and a discipler of the people of God. All of these qualifications in verses 2 and 3. You, you, have, to, you have to know somebody for a while, right? Right? You have to know somebody for a while before you can tell whether these qualifications are there. These qualities are cultivated. You're you're not born natively with them. We need spiritual maturity in those who are shepherds of the church. So, godly desire, godly character, godly ability, godly homes, godly conduct. And then finally, if you look at verse 7, you'll see a sixth qualification, and that's godly reputation. Godly reputation. God wants elders whose moral reputation is good even with our non-Christian neighbors. Isn't it interesting that Paul would say that these elders who are going to be the shepherds of the church, 
You've got to display that kind of moral reputation even to the pagans around you. They they may not like you, and Paul knows about that. Paul had plenty of pagans who didn't like him. But even those pagans can't say anything truthfully that would undermine your public reputation. Godly character, even with unbelievers. Paul says that the elders of the church ought to be like that. And brothers and sisters, isn't that a kindness of God? Isn't that a kindness of God? In a world, and you know this, in a world that wants to dismiss the church because of hypocrisy, that one of the gifts that the Lord Jesus pours out upon his church is officers, elders, men like this. One man said, this is the love of Jesus Christ towards you, church, because he's giving you men who meet these qualifications so that the world can't just dismiss us. Right? Sometimes the world looks at the church and it says, you know, you Christians, you talk a big game. You, you talk high and mighty, but you're no different than me. Why in the world should I listen to you? And the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to put elders in your life and I'm going to put elders in your congregation's life who walk in a godly way so that when the world accuses you of hypocrisy, these men can say, you know what? We're sinners too. But even though we are great sinners, we have a great Savior. And let me tell you, let me tell you what that great Savior has done to this wicked heart. And that Savior is worth listening to. What a kindness. What a love of King Jesus to give elders such as this. So, what God wants in elders. But there's a second section here, very briefly, on deacons. What God wants in deacons. First, let's think about what deacons do. What deacons do. For Paul, the deacon, his job description is that of a man who wants to concretely and tangibly show the love of Christ in the body of Christ. He wants to serve. The office of deacon is emphatically an office of service. Not just in some generic sense, but really and specifically. The deacon, he's not out for power, he's not out for prestige. He is a man who wants to serve. He wants to make Christian love tangible. You remember the origins of this office? Acts chapter 6. The Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being neglected and the Hebrew-speaking widows were being cared for. So the apostles were, they, they appointed a new cohort of officers to make sure that the correct service was happening to their widows. Verse 10, chapter 3, let them serve as deacons. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons. Very often, men are elected to the diaconate and these men are never elected elders and that's okay the two offices are distinct and some men are given gifts for one office and some are called to the other office and we want men in the diaconate who exude that kind of desire to serve the flock they love serving the Lord's people in time of need so that's the first thing for deacons secondly who deacons are or, or another way of saying it is what qualities should they have? Who deacons are? Well, you see that in verses 8 to 10 and in verses 12 and 13. Deacons must likewise be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. They must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their own households. 
Notice that just like with elders, Paul's list of qualifications is primarily moral. Did you notice that in both cases? The biggest component Paul spends time expounding surrounds issues of godliness. Not abilities, not talents, not skill sets. Not how how good is he at budget spreadsheets, how, how good is he at fixing toilets. No, they are to be godly and they are to have a desire to serve. They are to have a godly character of a man who is going to faithfully minister in the Lord's church. Notice there's several parallels between elders and deacons. Uh, for one thing, uh, deacons, just like elders, are asked to be good family spiritual leaders. It's vital that if they're going to spiritually serve you all in the congregation, that they know how to spiritually serve first their own families. You see that in verses 11 and 12. But then look at verse 10. It says this, Let these also first be tested. Now that's also important because it indicates that the elders are also to be tested first. And that's exactly what we do in the PCA, even as Pastor Nick already explained to you. Do you ever wonder why we have such an extensive time of officer training before we put a man up for a vote? We do that because of 1 Timothy 3, verse 10. It says that these men are also to be tested before they are set apart for this particular work. And so your pastor and your Presbyterian in southeast Alabama, they are very careful in screening so that you are able to choose from men who meet these qualifications. Notice that the deacon is to have self-control in speech, verse 8. Think, think of how absolutely important that is. A deacon, if he's doing his work, he's going to find out things about the life of families in the church that it could be hurtful to them and divisive to the fellowship if he were to have a loose tongue or loose lips. He's got to be a man of discretion, a man who's trustworthy, not double-tongued, but self-controlled over his mouth. Likewise, he needs to have self-control in the area of drink. Just like the elders, if a man doesn't have control with addictive things in one area of his life, well, he's not going to inspire a lot of confidence in other areas. Like when when he's trusted with money and when he's trusted with funds for the mercy ministry, he is going to need to exercise control in that. And right along with that, he's not greedy for dishonest gain. Verse 8. He's got self-control in the area of money. He's a faithful steward, a trustworthy man who's going to be entrusted with important and sensitive mercy tasks and service tasks. But deacons are basically to have three qualifications. They are to serve, they are to be theologically sound, and they are to have godly moral character. Now, where do I get that? Well, in verse 8, you see those expectations of godly moral character, verse 8. And you see the desire to serve. You see that in verses 10 and 13. And then verse 9. They hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now isn't that interesting? Elders are required to be able to teach. Now deacons are not required to be able to teach. But they are required to hold to historic, faithful, biblical, Christian orthodoxy. And to do it with a clear conscience. Even if they are not teachers the way elders are, they need to be biblically and theologically sound. God wants mercy to be tangibly ministered by people who really and truly love and really and truly believe his word. Now, what a contrast that is to what we so often hear these days. You'll you'll hear people say, you know, 
I'm not so concerned about doctrine and theology. We just need to be focused on deeds of love and deeds of mercy and justice. Well, here in 1 Timothy 3, God Almighty, through the Apostle Paul, is saying that the people who ought to be most concerned about deeds of love and mercy and justice must also be those who are the most theologically committed. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. Do you want guys who care about mercy or do you want guys who care about theology? And the answer is yes. And like the elders, Paul wants them to be men of godly character, men of dignity, husbands of one wife, good managers of their children and households. And again, he's pointing to fundamental godliness as the qualification for a deacon. So what deacons do, who deacons are, and then finally, Paul tells us, if you look at verse 13, what deacons get, what deacons get as they labor faithfully, what's their reward? Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that those who serve in this often often quiet, often behind-the-scenes work of deacons, they will be rewarded with a high standing. Serving isn't glamorous, not often. And it's not often esteemed by the world, but Paul says that such servants, deacons, ministers of mercy, they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant from their master. The deacons lead by example, but they also lead by concrete, tangible action because they are putting to life Jesus' words in John 13. The world will know that we are God's disciples by how we love one another. The deacons are bringing that to life in the life of your church. And so the work of the deacon, just like the work of an elder, is vital for the evangelistic witness of the church. You remember Jesus said that no one would give a cup of cold water to one of his disciples in his name. No one who does that will be forgotten. And the deacons are doing just that. And as they do, they labor and they get that reward. They get the smile of their master. Brothers, you who are taking these vows today and being ordained as elders and deacons, this is your high calling to serve the church, to guard the church, and in your lives and in your conduct to protect the church's public witness. There are days when the task before us feels absolutely insurmountable, hard and grievous days perhaps, and there's going to be days when you're going to want to cry out, how in the world can we do it? Who is sufficient for these things? And the truth is you're not. I'm not, but Christ is sufficient. Even as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, his grace is sufficient for you, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So we own, we admit our weaknesses, and we are strong in his strength as we press on because it is his delight, it is Christ's delight to pour out his gifts and his graces upon his church as you labor to faithfully serve him. Think on these things as you take these vows in a few minutes and as you are prayed for. Congregation, you think on these things too as we think of this high calling in this important day and as you take vows of your own and receive the leadership and the, and the exercise of ministry from these men in the life of this church, you pray for them even as they undertake this task. Come and labor alongside them and together by the grace of God, may all of us in this church labor faithfully for the glory of King Jesus and for the good of one another for as long as he should appoint us to be here or until he should return again. Praise God for his word to us today. Let's pray. 
How we praise you, King Jesus, that you are even now pouring out gifts upon your church. You are pouring out graces. The fact that there are men stepping up and being called by the congregation to serve as elders and deacons, even this very day, is tangible proof that you are continuing to build and sustain your church. Thank you. Bless these men as they shoulder up that high burden and responsibility and bless your word to the good of our souls today. Amen.